Hello and welcome to Editor's Pick, a War Elephant podcast, episode number 15. I'm joined with my fellow war editor, uh, War Elephant exec, Phil. Hello. And also Dr. Jeremy Tigan. Uh, welcome, Doctor. It is great to be with you. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, I am a professor of political science at Ramapo College in New Jersey. Um, I have been uh, teaching at this small public liberal arts college for uh, quite some time now. It's uh, I started in 2005. Um, I came to Ramapo from uh, the University of Texas, where I got my PhD, <clears throat> and that was after uh, a bachelor's at the University of Wisconsin. Um, I primarily write about two big areas, uh, two, two irons in the fire. Um, one is the politics of, of place, uh, the, the political geography, the idea of, of where we, how where we live um, shapes um, some of our political identities and behaviors. Um, uh, and uh, the other big iron in the fire is, is the politics of, of military service or if, if, if there's a Venn diagram with um, elections and military service, previous military service, I'm kind of at the, at the, at the overlap there, uh, along with a few other people that write on this on this question of um, you know, that, that kind of pokes at the ideas like, you know, why are military veterans so numerically overrepresented in American politics? Um, just as a proportion of the of of, of how, how many veterans are in the electorate, veterans any way you slice them are are quantitatively um, overrepresented in in our elections. So those are the two big areas I I work on. Uh, I teach classes at the college uh, from American Government One Hundred and One um, uh, to some electives, uh, and uh, I guess I'm I'm famous for teaching the uh, required methodology course. Um, that's, that's the one that drags my, uh, course of al averages down a bit, I think, but, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, me in a nutshell. Uh, I live, uh, not too far from the George Washington bridge in, uh, lovely Bergen County, New Jersey. So, um, I have, well, uh, been informed that your scholarship and lectures seem to indicate you are a strong proponent of realignment theory. Could you... Give us a, a bird's eye view of what that theory says and how it's relevant today. Ooh, the, the first part of that question is way easier than the second. Um, so um, one of my mentors in, in grad school was uh, Walter Dean Burnham, uh, who was the student of the, the sort of father of this, uh, this idea of, of critical elections and realignment theory, uh, who is V.O. Key. And uh, what, you know, people like Key and, and Burnham described was that American elections um, up until recently. So big asterisk on how it applies now is the is 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 uh, open up open to debate. But if you look at the broad sweep of American electoral history from roughly Jackson through the Vietnam War, um, it's pretty clear you can see patterns that emerge where one, instead of like a, a ping pong game, ping pong uh, ball game where, you know, 
Democrats win one, the Republicans win one, or the Whigs win one, and the Democrats win one, and maybe one party wins a couple. Instead, if you you, you can find that there are generational chunks of time where one party is a dominant party, and uh, they come into power um, in a burst of um, electoral change that um, sort of takes whatever the previous tapestry of American politics was, kind of rips it up and sews it together in a different way. And those times of transition uh, we, we refer to as like a, a four to six year cycle of a couple of presidential elections and congressional elections in between where um, there's really transformational change that, that occurs. Um, big chunks of the electorate um, either enter or leave the electorate um, uh, change sides. Sometimes parties, uh, as in the 1850s, uh, disappear like the Whigs. Um, and, uh, but turnout's usually high. There's usually some kind of strife going on. So the, the classic periods you think of are, you know, big transformational change in the 1850s and 60s surrounding, you know, the sectional conflict over the expansion of slavery, uh, and the prosecution of, of the civil war. Um, and then the new Republican Party is dominant for a generation uh, until roughly the turn of the century. And the Republican Party uh, no longer sees itself as the, you know, venerated uh, party that won the, won the Civil War, instead sort of rebrands itself a laissez-faire, um, pro-business, um, uh, you know, metal standard uh, money policy party of capitalism that more resembles the Republican party. We, we, we know, um, at least before Trump and, um, and then these Republicans are dominant until the, uh, economic distress of the late 1920s. Um, and Democrats, uh, come in and another period of transformational change occurs. And now Democrats are, are, are dominant, um, winning most of the presidential elections, winning, um, most of the, you know, the, most of the time they're in the majority, um, in both chambers, uh, for, for another generation, uh, from FDR to, to JFK. And most to of it was FDR. <laughs> so, um, the second part of your question is much harder, which is if we can identify the, the Jacksonian revolution in the 1820s or the, the birth of the Republican party in the 1850s and sixties, and uh, the um, Williams, Jennings, Bryan in 1896 and, and the change that occurred with the Republican Party uh, in defeating him. Um, and of course, the, you know, stock market crash and Great Depression of the of the 1920s and 30s are pretty clear breakpoints. Like it, you, you can very easily waltz into an undergraduate classroom and talk about these historical events and see the patterns that that that, that I'm describing um, where the the debate kind of begins is what happens after, um, you know, roughly 1968, early 1970s, when there's no longer, no, it, it, it's hard to identify which party is, is the dominant one. Um, you know, in the, in the Reagan eighties, um, yes, he was a popular president who won reelection, um, about as robustly as one can in 1984, but the Democrats remained in charge of Congress for, for most of those years. Uh, Bill Clinton won twice, but his first time was with 43% of the popular vote. Um, George W. Bush, um, yep, uh, reelected, but again, uh, Democrats in control with very, very narrow elections. In fact, one of them, he doesn't even win the popular vote. Um, so since the, the, the 
some refer to it as a dealignment of the of the electorate in the nineteen um, late late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies. Um, we've kind of entered a period that re-election theory doesn't do a great job of of, of explaining um, because we don't have transformative elections. We've had nothing but very very close elections um, for uh, in in recent memory uh, and. This this clear periodicity that, that 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 does a pretty good job of organizing and describing what happened between, like I say, roughly Jackson to to uh, Nixon, is um, uh, it just doesn't work very well in 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 recent uh, politics. Certainly not since the turn of the century. So I guess I'll the question. Um, you know, you may have seen reports or video that about 20 or 25 uh, men in uniform took part in the activities on the Capitol, on Capitol Hill last week. Um, yet there seems to be this sort of normative presupposition that it's best for the military to stay above politics. How will um, the image, at least, of men in uniform, even if they went rogue, uh, being uh, members of the protest group sort of harm the military's image as being above politics. Very complicated question. Uh, so let's let's kind of put some guardrails on the conversation um, because uh, too often in in both you know mainstream journalism as well as you know the wild wild west of of social media, um, there's a tendency to conflate military veterans with people who are active duty and who are who are currently serving. And you know, retired and and, and simply post service members are free to do politically whatever they want. Um, in not uh, that that the 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 the, the actual uh, UCMJ Uniform Court of Military Justice rules that apply to active duty members are far more ironclad, and that restricts um, uh, the political expression rights of members of the military. Uh, mil- members of the military do not have a First Amendment guarantee of freedom of expression, um, and you know CMR scholars abound would would agree that this is probably a good thing that we try to keep our armed forces away from um, not political fights because um, th- they are political, right? I mean, they're a part of our government. They are bought and paid for by the U.S. Congress. Um, they are directed to go by. You know, uh, they're they're ordered by a commander in chief who's a politician. So, they're if we think the politics is basically the redistribution of power and the expression of public policy, well, military policy is is politics. So it's not that we want to make pull the 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 military away from politics itself. Rather, we want to keep them away from the any imagery around our um, parties and partisanship that might make them look like they're. Um, you know, choosing a side. And, um, you know, you may recall from the, the campaign trail, uh, uh, a woman in uniform uh, went to a Joe Biden rally. And that's that's an explicit no-no that is, that is forbidden um, by the UCMJ. Um, you know, for the same reason that, uh, along a similar logic that the Hatch Act that, you know, restricts government employees from basically campaigning on the job so that, you know, if you're mail carrier comes up to your door with a, a giant, you know, yay for Trump or dump Trump, you know, sticker on their uniform that 
that's a violation of Hatch Act because we don't want our government to, to be a tool of, of partisan uh, campaigning. Um, for even more important reasons, we don't want our armed forces to um, even have the appearance. So back to that breakdown of, of the guardrails. So a fad of, we'll say, roughly the last four presidential election cycles is that politicians have gotten woke to the idea that getting retired flag officers, you know, former admirals and generals um, who are no longer in the service, but we still call them admirals and generals in shorthand, um, they've gotten them pulled up on the stage at nominating uh, conventions. Um, they're they're kind of trying to circle um, endorsements out of them. And while that is not technically a violation because they go from when they when they separate from the service, they go back to being a civilian and they get their First Amendment back. Um, but the um, the idea that, you know, they're they're fam- clearly skirting the line it, and flouting the intention. Indeed. Indeed. And look, everybody's entitled to their to their to their politics, including current and past soldiers. It's just what they say about it in public. Um, some officers in American history have been uh, radical apolitical um, uh, figures like William Tecumseh Sherman famously never voted. He, he didn't even think it was appropriate for army officers to to participate in elections. That's how how much of a firewall he wanted between um, partisan politics and, and the armed forces. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it, I, I don't endorse it. I don't endorse the endorsement. Uh, I, I, I wish they wouldn't. Um, but I'm also, I would be, uh, just, I would be afraid of whatever rule that would be put in place to, to restrict it would probably face, you know, instant first amendment litigation that it wouldn't survive. Um, I just wish that the, they were they would carry their professionalism with them. Um, you know, this well, and also out. maybe insist on referring to themselves as civilians rather than, you know, admiral or general. Yeah, uh, you know, one of our most famous uh, general turned presidents, uh, Dwight Eisenhower, um, was was profoundly concerned about that when he was contemplating um, heeding the calls from both parties that he. He, he run under their banner um, after World War II in the 1952 election. Uh, he, uh, I, I've, I, in, in writing my my book, uh, I spent an entire week at the Eisenhower Presidential Library in Kansas. Perhaps you could tell us which book this was. Oh, uh, my, my book uh, from 2018 is, is called Why Veterans Run, and it explores, um, tries to answer that the question I posed earlier, which is why veterans are so um, quantitatively overrepresented in politics. More than half of the individuals who have run for president on a major party nomination have been military veterans. And there's no way that, you know, half of American men have, have been military veterans. Um, and so something about our politics pulls them um, or uh, something about military service um, pushes them. Uh, into politics, um, or more likely a, a combination of, of, of both. Uh, and so in, in writing that book, um, n- not all presidential candidates ha- have sort of an equal level of salience with their military service. Um, you know, Walter Mondale and, and Mike Dukakis 
did serve some time in uniform, but it wasn't a very big part of their life. In fact, it was a very trivial part of their life. And so um, I didn't need to, to spend much time. But for someone like Dwight Eisenhower, for whom military service is basically his defining characteristic and attribute, the, the reason people know him, the thing that makes him a um, um, not just a viable presidential candidate, but a, you know, a, one that was uh, earned a nomination and then election and re-election, um, is that he was very careful. He, he, he thought it was a, a dangerous precedent. And so he, he did what he could to, um, you know, never bring those trappings of, of, of his military career into his uh, civilian uh, electioneering and campaigning. You know, these days, you know, I, I well, go that, through, that brings I go to through um, the question all of the, uh, every, every congressional Bush. cycle. I look at the, every course or every uh, campaign website for, for house challengers and trust me when I tell you, um, I do it so you don't have to. But if anybody has a hint of military service in the background, they make a really big deal out of it. You know, there's going to be pictures from them in uniform. Um, and if they're not a veteran, they try to you know bring old Uncle Louie, who was a Korean War veteran, into the picture and try to borrow some of that that civic legitimacy and prestige that can be harvested there. Um, Eisenhower did none of that. He 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 did none of that. Um, you know, attempt to to sort of campaign on his medals. He tried to distance himself as far as he could from from that for in a very conscious way. It was something he he was profoundly concerned about. So we have a really, I think, uh, interesting question from the chat. Gideon asks, wouldn't the fact that Ross Perot ran in 1992 along with the two major party candidates be both a reason that Bill Clinton won only 43% of the popular vote as well as a sign of an ongoing realignment? Uh, do you feel like we can make that kind of recent judgment on patterns? I, I'm uncomfortable making it. Um, it and and uh, it's 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 a good question. And and uh, from uh, Gideon there, the the um, quite right mathematically, you know, that the reason that Bill Clinton was able to saunter in with an easy electoral college victory um, while having uh, not even a a majority of popular votes is because there was a you know a a Texan by the name of H. Bross Perot that won some 20 million votes uh, across the country, just never enough in one place to win a single electoral college vote. Um, so mathematically quite right. But that's not the only defining characteristic of a critical election or a realigning election. Um, turnout is usually huge, um, massive. Uh, you know, turnout in, in, in the Civil War elections was was higher than than the, the, the years previous and subsequent. Uh, same with, uh, you know, 19, uh, 1930s midterms, um, 1932, um, because the electorates really fired up. Um, you know, I, w when we talk about turnout being sort of normal at roughly six out of 10 eligible voters, um, you know, it, it's going to be higher for a true critical election. If, if somebody, somebody who studies these things profoundly would would have more criteria for what a critical election is, but high turnout, um, third party rumblings is another uh, uh, sign. Uh, back to Gideon's question, um, you know the the parole one is a lot less like the third party entrance of the Republicans in in the late 1850s, though, um, because instead of you know taking a position on a an issue like the expansion of slavery, the way the Republicans were able to come up with a clear one, um, 
whereas the Whigs could not come up with a clear one because they had they were too geographically um, uh, reliant on Southern Whigs uh, who who refused to let the party take a, a position on on the expansion of slavery. Um, H. Ross Perot just picked up basically a single issue that everyone knew about, but both parties were, you know, putting their uh, uh, fingers in their ears and saying, la, 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 don't look here. And that was the, the, the budget deficit and debt. Um, so uh, great question, but, um, you know, true critical elections, true realigning elections sort of have a, have a clear before what, what politics look like, and then a different clear, what looks like it afterward. And um, for for a lot of election scholars, um, it's just not clear. We seem to be in a period of intense polarization and very very narrowly fought uh, presidential elections um, with a lot of the same battlegrounds year in year out, and uh, a lot of you know parties losing seats like the Democrats did in in the House this time. No one with a clear mandate, nobody with a clear majority. Uh, that seems to be the the sort of working definition, which is, you know, kind of the opposite of what we're talking about with, say, the Democrats during the New Deal, where the only time they lose a presidential election is when the guy who killed Hitler is running in, in, in 1952 and 1956. So, um, you know, the Democratic Party since uh, George Floyd was killed has been trying to take a less forceful approach to law enforcement using things like social workers and uh, more restorative tactics. But uh, Capitol Police seems to be getting uh, a black eye every 10 minutes. You had the story out of the AP this morning saying that um, they turned down help from Homeland Security on six separate occasions. Do you think the embarrassment that Capitol Police is facing in light of what happened last week is going to force the Democrats to rethink their position on police reform going forward? I don't think so. Um, you know, the events from the 6th, um, I think are sufficient. I think I think Democrats have the ability to put sufficient daylight uh, between those two ideas, um, because I mean, I don't know what what you guys are doing, but I when I when I, I I couldn't put the remote down. I almost never watched television news, but you know I, I started seeing the the beginnings of it on Twitter, and I I couldn't eat. It, I was just sick to my stomach. It 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 was a um, just a uh, just a different set of uh, of of, of situation, just a completely different situation that, that I think won't be difficult for Democrats to, to keep daylight between so that, you know, whatever failures, the Capitol police, and they seem to be growing in, in, in numerous terms, but obviously it's still, a, uh, still a lot more facts to find out. Um, whereas the very clear clarity of, of George Floyd's death um, and just how, um, banal it appeared to, to the officers involved. Um, it's just simply so far easier to digest um, than the very uh, obvious complexity of, of what happened on the 6th. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to pretend to have all the answers to that question. That's, that's I've, you know, we're learning more and more about <clears throat> what happened there. But uh, the, the short answer is I, 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 I perceive that the Democrats will be able to keep enough daylight between those two things. And 
getting back to um, the men in uniform uh, at the protest, uh, the UCMJ says that uh, if you're court-martialed for sedition, you face the death penalty. Um, do you think that those men, and they're even throwing around Michael Flynn getting court-martialed, do you think they'll actually be court-martialed? And if so, how likely are they to actually be executed? Um, the, that probability is very low. Um, the the, the ca- capital punishment, that is. Um, the, again, I, I don't know the numbers. I've only seen what you've seen on Twitter. Uh, I, I believe there was a, an active duty officer, uh, a female from station at Fort Bragg, um, unconfirmed as just, you know, things I saw flying by me on Twitter today that, that she was actually already being separated. Like she has, her papers are already in. And so she, her, her, her date is already coming for reasons I don't know. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the other, the, the guy that had the tactical helmet on that he's, the uh with the zip ties i don't remember the, the names but he's sub, he's retired so he's not going to be you know prosecuted under under the ucmj under any circumstances um i anybody there who is currently active duty um or uh national guard reserves um certainly takes a a far more nuanced impression of the oath they took than the way I understand that oath. Um, very hard to imagine um, someone, uh, uh, especially the, the the woman who was killed, ironically, uh, when she was in the Air Force, um, one of her one of her posts was was capital defense. And then to be later in life, you know, swept up in a in a in a mob and you know, being actually at the vanguard of a assault on the thing that you were once posted to protect is, um, is difficult to swallow. Um, it, it, it really, uh, I still haven't fully processed it. So we often say the cliche that we study history so that we can learn from it, from pro- progress from it, perhaps, avoid mistakes that have been made in the past in similar patterns. Is there anything you can tell uh, a right-leaning audience? But of course, we do have you know centrist and uh, liberal viewers as well who um, are very concerned. I mean, I think most of us are concerned about the state of our country right now. What you think we might be able to do or look out for. Um, I think too many of us spend time you know, just really agitated about stuff we can't do anything about. So I'm wondering if you have any things you know from studying the patterns of the last 300 years of our history. So, you know, two in very clear, you know, <clears throat> pardon me, uh, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd be happy to speak directly to disappointed Trump voters um, who, who really feel like, you know, the, the time that has elapsed between uh, the election and now feels um, feels very difficult. Um, I've had a, a kind of run a conversation with, with a lot of colleagues and I just want to remind, you know, disappointed Trump voters here that this is, uh, it, it's, it's normal to lose elections. Um, and what normally happens is 
the 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 losing party usually just recedes out of view, you know, calls the other candidate, congratulates them, and then we're off to the races on who's going to be what cabinet secretary and what the first 100 days are going to look like. And we kind of forget the other party exists until, you know, they start running congressional campaigns and then the, the invisible primary starts happening. Uh, but the Republicans were not afforded that luxury. And they, you know, you know, Donald Trump, the, the, the president, in, in his refusal to accept the results of the election, have forced the entire party to, you know, to, to, to maintain that posture. And it, it's, it's hard. It, it, it just makes this transition uh, far more difficult. I mean, it's always difficult when you lose, when you lose elections, you know, I don't well, share more my than own. difficult. It's incredibly destructive because it destroys the people who do have a political futures chances at being able to become effective for the next That's term. That's it. Is that you know you're 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 hitting the nail on the head, which is in normal non-Trump times, you know you lose an election and it's you you go off in the wilderness and you're going to figure out in the next cycle, you know you're probably going to win the house back, you're probably going to win some seats back in the next midterms and charge up some energies, whether it's you know like the Tea Party after Obama's first election, um, uh, who knows you, you might you might win back the house, who knows, but. Presidential politics will come back into play and the next generation, you know, the party turns the page and almost never nominates the same person um, or even considers it. And so we're looking to the future. Right. And Donald Trump didn't let the Republican Party have that. And it's it's normal. It's healthy to it, to turn the page and, and look to who's next and who's who's going to be the upcoming leaders for uh, it, it's hard to imagine the the other people on the stage in 2016 being able to pick up the pieces. Um, you know, Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and and, and Jeb Bush and that crowd um, don't. You know, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but they don't feel like they're the uh, that they have. You know, civic. You know, legit. Not civic. Sorry. You know, legitimacy within the party uh, to carry that torch. Um, and so, like Donald Trump not leaving the stage is making it hard for the party to do what it's supposed to do, which is figure out who they're going to be in, in 2024, who are they going to nominate? What, what are they going to be about? Um, you know, their, their capitulation on not having a party platform and just saying that Donald Trump's Twitter account is our party platform. That too is, 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 is probably not good for, for party development, down ballot races, recruiting, um, all the things that parties need to do to, um, um, charge the batteries back up and get competitive because you know they'll be back. You know the 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 idea that that Nancy Pelosi will be speaker for more than uh, twenty four more months seems seems very difficult. And and the ability for Republicans to you know move past Donald Trump uh, is is vital for their you know priming for the the twenty four race. Um, you know, you've uh, made the argument that you think that campaigns only matter at the margins. Um, do you think the Georgia Senate campaign was one of those where Donald Trump's uh, belief that the Georgia election was stolen from him might have hurt the Republican Party in those two Senate races? Uh, we'll know more uh, when we get some uh, some more data. But the fact that there wasn't a ton of in-person voting 
supports that argument. I think that uh, a lot of the, the, you know, you know, as we learned in the, the general election in, in November last year, um, the Republicans do well on, on election day and, and, and Democrats, um, were more voting early. Um, so very speculative. I, 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 I think there's, there's a lot more to learn about those runoffs. Um, and they're both, and again, very close elections. Um, but you know, you know, that, that, I mean, it, even if, even if both Republicans won by whiskers, I, I was really hoping they wouldn't like start spiking footballs because for Democrats to do that well in, in runoffs, um, in Dixie, um, you know, with, with, with their previous standard bear, standard bear, Donald Trump, um, you know, flying the flag and, and, uh, he just, it, it, it kind of reminded me of his weird get out the vote, uh, strategy before the general election, which is, you know, don't vote it by mail. Uh, if I were the campaign manager in a battleground state, hearing the president say that, I think I'd be uh, tearing my ever-growing hair out. Yeah, I mean, the Republican Party in California managed to make back some of the terrific losses they had in 2018 by really organizing a ground game of getting uh, mail-in ballots, um, ballot harvesting on the Republican side, as well as the well-established Democratic ballot harvesting machine over there. So I think that much as I personally have philosophical problems with mail-in ballots and absentee voting, um, it's a fact of our, our voting process now and Republicans refusing to get Republicans who want to do that engaged in that process is suicide, um, which I think is why I 100% blame Donald Trump both for his loss at the presidency and the loss of the Senate because what he did was beyond idiotic i i want to get back to phil's question um but before i mean i I've, I've only worked on one campaign um and uh but you know i've been writing about them for for 20 years and you know you know campaign campaign 101 is encourage people to vote in whatever mechanism there that's being offered uh you know having you know whether it's a ground game whether whether it's you know select endorsements or ad buys or you know, the latest, greatest, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, algorithm, advertising, whatever it is, you do more of it to get more people to participate, especially among your, your base. So uh, I want to maybe start looking forward. Um, you know, one of the things that my kids will be studying about uh, when they look back at the Trump presidency is the Russia investigation. Um, and there are similar allegations that Joe Biden's son engaged in corrupt dealings abroad. Uh, do you think that those uh, allegations will color Joe Biden's presidency the way they did to Donald Trump? Um, the, I, I don't think so. Um, and, and again, I have no special knowledge any more than uh, I'm, I'm a man who reads the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times and the Washington Post every day. Um, I don't watch television news, but I do know about the echo chambers and, um, and you know, the, it seemed like the Hunter Biden story was definitely asymmetrically uh, <laughs> promoted in the, in the news silos that, that we all, you know, I, I, I greatly lament that we live in. Um, uh, it's, you know, I, I grew up with a Republican party that's, 
basic orientation to foreign policy is do whatever annoys Moscow. And so I've never quite understood the the president's reluctance to uh, to criticize uh, Vladimir Putin. Um, I, I I don't I don't have any special information or knowledge that anyone else doesn't have access to. Uh, but that that lack of criticism, um, the um, undercutting of NATO, um, these are just things that I think would be unthinkable to um, Reagan era Republicans or or even you know the the 20 years intervening. Well, I definitely think that uh, George W. Bush wouldn't have wanted to undermine NATO given his coalition building instinct. Um, we have our chief editor, uh, Christine, joining us for our last few questions. Christine, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank, thank you for letting me in since I was so late. Welcome, Professor Teagan. I'm very excited that you agreed to come on today. It's, I'm, I'm glad to be with you. I'm a uh, I'm in this kind of probably a similar situation as you are. I'm starting classes tomorrow teaching. So uh, we, we, we killed our spring break and are starting the semester late this, this term to try to contend with the, the curve. Um, so I actually have a little bit more breathing room this January than usual, but uh, I am starting to feel that pressure. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a little, little worried because I teach lab classes. So going online is less than simple. <laughs> So I was wondering, you sent uh, quite a, a link of documents or, you know, interesting questions, and I was fascinated by them all. But I was really wondering what you find uh, going on at the local level. Do you find what, what's going around at the local level to be indicative of national politics at all? Um. You know, there, there's a, a one of the most famously repeated sort of folklore of American political history is Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill's uh, repeated claim. Uh, he was Speaker of the House in the in the 1980s during the Reagan years. Um, he famously repeated the phrase that all politics is local. Is that yes, you know, voters are you know motivated to vote for presidential candidates and think about national issues. Um, you know, when they vote for president, but for Anything down ballot from there, you know, the more you can be Senator Pothole, the, the better your chances are. And the more locally oriented, you know, you're, you are, the more often you come back to district and 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 and, uh, and, and keep yourself grounded um, in local politics, the better off you're going to be, because that means you're serving your constituents um, when you're making decisions on, on the floor. Uh, and um, that old saw has gotten really tired. Um, you know, it seems like these days you could almost reverse it completely and say all politics is national. Um, you know, the, the things that motivate people, I don't know if it's the, the, the social media silos. Uh, I don't know if it's, um, uh, you know, hyperpolarization that started on the Hill. Um, and there's a lot of things that we can kind of blame for that, including, you know, name, name the usual suspects gerrymandering and redistricting that creates a, a class of basically, uh, you know, permanent incumbents that um, with, with a few exceptions of, you know, 50 to 80 races every cycle uh, that might be close to competitive. Most of, most of the districts are heavily tilted one way or the other, and there's not likely to be anything, any seat uh, turnover. Um, 
but that doesn't explain why the Senate too has has become quite polarized. So it's not just um, redistricting and gerrymandering that's created polarization. Uh, but that to, to to your to your point, um, uh, Christine, is that it it feels like now it, it doesn't mean that local politics is irrelevant. Um, I I am a, a, a an elected leader in in my little town. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm a school board member, so it's, it's not as if I, you know, don't believe in local politics and, and, and I'm certainly actively engaged in it. Um, but, you know, as a guy who looks at polling data and looks at what animates voters, um, they, you know, we, the, the, the current mood of tribalism, uh, seems to animate a lot of people at the national level, um, far more than, than local issues, or at least the trend has moved more national. So if we can, say that Tip O'Neill remains a little bit relevant. Well, maybe the, 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 the pendulum has swung uh, far towards the, the national and, and maybe we could hope for a, a pendulum, a pendulum shift backward to uh, something more uh, that blends a balance of national and local politics animating people. You know, I think from my experience, I was knocking on doors for a special state assembly election out in Western New Jersey um, and I think the sort of 24-hour news cycle in which Donald Trump took out 23 and a half hours of it uh, definitely had an effect on the races. Like I would knock on a door and the first question I'd get is, did Donald Trump call this person a rhino? And it was a no-name state assembly candidate. Um, so the sort of expectation that Donald Trump will have commented on everything and everyone seems to have permeated down to the lowest levels of government and really impacts the way people think about local issues that Donald Trump, frankly, doesn't care about. 100% agree. Yeah, I, I was wondering, because I went to a Meet the Candidate forum this year for a local, well, for a state representative in a highly contested election. And nearly everyone who showed up was concerned about do you support Donald Trump on this policy? Do you support Donald Trump on that policy? And at the time, it really shocked me. I'd, I'd never seen anything quite like it. And I was wondering if you know if there's a path out of this uh, back towards local politics. Is that something that can be brought back? And how would, we, how would conservatives go about doing that? Oh, that's a that's a big ask. Um, <laughs> it's okay. You can just pick out a piece of it and answer what you want to answer. <laughs> well, okay. So, you know, when 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 political science professors get up in front of you know poli uh, sci or American Government One Hundred and One, you know, sometime in the first few weeks, of course, what do we talk about? Federalism. The fact that our country, you know, relies very heavily on state and local governments to do a great deal of our public policy action, and you know, the thing that's in our headlines right now is is the rollout of, of the vaccines has been a very uneven um, pastiche of mess. Um, and, you know, you know, it, it, our, our, you know, hyper-localism and, uh, you know, like here in New Jersey, local teeny tiny municipalities um, have a great deal of political power. You know, we devolve a lot of, 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 of public policy um, outward. And, you know, the failure of, these various state entities to roll these um, vaccine um, or the, the beginnings of these vaccine inventories out is, is just going to be the thing that's on all our PowerPoints when we're teaching federalism for the next, for the next couple of years. Um, 
And that's just simply never going to happen in a country with a, a more unitary um, system um, like, you know, most, you know, your, your European democracies. Um, so we're, we're simultaneously um, doing exactly what, what Christine is, is, is hoping that we can somehow, you know, make local politics animate people and not have to have a, uh, you know, a Donald Trump litmus test, as Phil says, for, for you know, county coroners or anything way down ballot. Um, at the same time, recognizing that it's our local politics that does, you know, most of the redistribution, right? You know, your property taxes are paying for, you know, local cops and schools, and that's a big chunk of, of the redistribution, even though very few people vote in those elections um, if they're not if they're not on the November ballot. Um, and so almost ironically, the, the elections that have the highest turnout are for, you know, presidential elections where, you know, one, a voter has the least likely chance of, of, of having their vote matter, but also, um, you know, their sort of connection to the candidate couldn't be more, more distant. So we simultaneously need to try to figure out how to bring the, you know, political polarization temperature down. Um, and if, if that means you know, piecing together, you know, local politics and worrying about climbing the rungs up rather than caring about what the guy at the top of the ladder thinks about our down ballot candidates and local issues. Um, that would be good at the same time, you know, recognizing that, you know, the the power of the federal government to help states um, roll these things out, you know, might come at the cost of some state autonomy, but if it gets a vaccine in my arm faster, I'm all for it. I think this is also an opportunity to uh, remind our viewers that you really need to actually read the Constitution for the federal government and your state constitution so that you understand what policies are going to affect you. You know, Phil Murphy is never going to build the wall along the Delaware River. So whether or not your state assemblyman agrees with building a wall uh, shouldn't be that important to you, unless, of course, you live in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, you know, and you should really focus more on things that do matter, which for Northern New Jersey, that'll be things like the gateway tunnel project or, you know, controlling uh, the deer and bear population. Uh, those are things you should be getting upset at if your politician doesn't agree with you, not whether or not we need more oil drilling off the coast of Alaska. That's a great point, Phil. Uh, and, 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 you know, the parties need to be good at understanding that they're going to have both red state and blue state members and understanding that there's, you know, there's going to be diversity um, uh, and, and you can't use the exact same, you know, set of, of, of talking points and, and ads and, and priorities. Um, you know, you know, for example, the, you know, the deductible um, uh, property tax um, blue state tax, basically that, that Republicans got behind, well, it's great for Texan, Texas Republicans. It's horrible for New Jersey Republicans. Um, and, um, you know, obviously it's a difficult thing to bridge. And, but the, the you know, the bigger the, the, the size of the chasm between the moderates and, and the um, extreme portions of the party um, also make it really hard for our presidential candidates, right? You know, think about the journey that Mitt Romney had to take to become the Republican nominee, right? He's a he's a blue blue state Republican that basically invents Obamacare, mm -hmm. right? Is you know emphasizes you know 
pro-choice positions while remaining pro-life personally. And then he has to go to South Carolina and win them over in a primary. So he changes his tune a little bit, or at least, you know, maybe it's the same lyrics, but he's got to shift the, <laughs> he's got to move some, some notes around. Um, and then zip back to the center after he's accomplished the, uh, accomplished the, 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 the nomination. Um, if, if you, if you put a, a t-shirt on Etsy that says repeal McGovern Frazier, I will buy it at almost any price. Yeah. And I think um, sort of as a corollary to that, I think the Republican party really shot itself in the foot making its official party platform. We support the America first agenda because if you're a purple district Republican who was trying to run away from Trump and your party's literal platform is just Donald Trump by name, um, you got no shot. And it certainly hurt um, my purple district Republican candidate. He ended up losing by seven points, even though our district is Republican plus three, uh, according to Cook. And I'm sure uh, my district is not the only one that ran away from our candidate because Trump's name was attached to it. It, it, I think one of the barometers for trying to make sense of the 2020 elections, not just the top of the ballot, but 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 down ballot, especially for the higher federal races for the U.S. Senate and U.S. House, is um, where did where did Trump, you know, underperform the the local Republicans, you know, in the in the gubernatorial and the Senate and the, in the, in the House races, um, co- you know, compared to uh, you know, where, where he was in, in 16. And I know everyone's excited about turnout and the fact that Donald Trump, you know, did pick up a record number of general election votes. Um, well, turnout was high, you know, a rising tide's going to float all the boats. Um, so, you know, I like to zoom in on the proportions um, and sort of treat turnout as a separate entity rather than look at total ballots in, in places. So I, I, I think uh, I agree, Phil. It, it, looking at at the political geography of of where proportionately, not in absolute terms, but proportionately, where Trump underperformed his own 2016 numbers, how do you do vis-a-vis the the other Republicans on the ballot? Is uh, the way that I'm just beginning to start looking at at, at general election data uh, right now. I'm kind of focusing on House races uh, because I'm tracking a, the the fortunes of, of those military veterans who are running that I described earlier. Um, but, uh, I will, you know, eventually get to, um, uh, upper, uh, uh, presidential and, and Senate races too. So I guess looking forward at 2022, um, the census data is going to go public within the coming month and we're going to know how many house seats, uh, New York loses. Um, should they lose more than one seat? Do you think that uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is going to be gerrymandered out of a seat? And if so, is that going to be the end of her or will she? No, move on that's things? never going to happen because Fox News will never let that happen because they make way too much money <laughs> off of her. Um, <laughs> clickbait. Find me find me a Fox News, you know, uh, Web page daily that, that doesn't have her her red lipstick somewhere, you know, somewhere within two page downs on the on the, on the website. Uh, no, uh, seriously. Uh, it, it's tough uh, here in New Jersey, um, as, as, as Phil knows, um, when you lose a, a seat in the reapportionment, 
and that's the process by which the federal government counts noses in all 50 states and then you know divides by 435 to figure out um, proportionally what percentage of America you are. So if if New Jersey is 2.3% of America, then New Jersey gets 2.3% of 435. And um, n- now New York is not losing people. Uh, it's just that the Sunbelt states are growing far faster than than um, than this part of the country. And um, so you know your 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 Floridas and your Texases and and um, Arizonas. Um, are just proportionally growing faster, both demographically and via migration. And so they're gaining seats and places like New Jersey and New York are losing them uh, just in general trends. And here in New Jersey, we went from 13 seats to 12 in uh, 2011. And it is a the most knives out cutthroat version of musical chairs you've ever seen. Um, and states can do different things um, because the, the feds tell states how many seats they get, but it's up to the states to decide how they're going to redraw their districts. And um, New Jersey, for example, shamelessly and out in public with, without, with a straight face says that their redistricting strategy that Republicans and Democrats basically agree on is to protect incumbents to increase their seniority in Congress so that they can bring home goodies uh, with better committee assignments. Um, they just say this in the open. And so, when they when they made their map in 2011, um, there were arguably two, you know, competitive seats, two or three, depending on on what you call competitive, um, you know. So it it's I don't I'm no expert in New York politics, but it's it's unlikely that uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is going to be on the losing side of one of those um, knives out musical chairs fights. Um, because she's a, you know, a rising star. I mean, if the conversation is about, you know, when is she going to try to, uh, you know, primary Schumer, uh, it's unlikely she's going to be, uh, you know, the, the first to hit the bricks in some kind of Albany coup. But again, I don't have any inside information. It just seems that uh, uh, it w- she would be, you know, uh, an unlikely victim in, in if, if that becomes the battle. It wouldn't it be wouldn't it be easier for Albany to uh, make life harder on upstate Republican districts, and since they're now in charge of Albany, uh, I would suspect that that would be their tendency, not AOC. But I don't know anything inside baseball. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Teakin. Thank you, Phil and Christine, for joining us. Um, I, I have to say, in the spirit of, uh, 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 it used to be that I could get my name pronounced. Uh, Tigan with impunity, but there's now a celebrity who goes by Tegan, even though she knows it's wrong. Um, so I, I, I just want to make sure I go on record. I, and, I and apologize go. for that. No worries. Happens all the time. Actually, I, I also have a cousin whose name is Tegan and it's spelled exactly the same way. <laughs> well, tell your cousin, you should go to Norway and see how they say. It. Well, she is, I, I, I believe it's, um, an Irish first name. Oh, that's different. Yeah, I think it's probably a variant of Tegan with an A. Um, but anyway, Dr. Tigan, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this was very, um, I think it kind of gave us a, a break while still um, being connected to the things that are going on today. I appreciate the kind of 
uh, research. Um, the war elephant really prizes three qualities of research, respect, and respect uh, relaxed. And I think you really modeled all of those things today. So I hope that um, other people enjoyed that. I know we had some really good uh, questions this time. So I appreciated your willingness to engage with that. Um, if great you to hear. are, I'm glad to, yeah. I'm glad to hear it. My, my publisher would kill me if I didn't remind uh, viewers that uh, Why Veterans Run is available uh, in softback, hardback, uh, as a Kindle book, uh, as well as an audio book. Yeah, if you uh, email me a link, I'll put it in the show description. Um, and I uh, want to encourage anyone who's watching to join the War Elephant Discord community. The link is already in the episode description. Um, we're also on Quora, which is where we post most of our answers and written content, especially from our founder, John Davis. He is um, working really hard on a lot of stuff right now with everything that's going on, but um, keep following us. We'll keep providing content. Uh, the Discord is full of conversations like this. Dr. Tigan's not on there, but he's more than welcome to. And we have a lot of people who have uh, very varied perspectives and uh, expertise is a lot of people with a lot of expertise on the discord community so feel free to join that and anyone who's watching we would love it if you'd also join us um and so i would like to thank everyone for watching and we'll see you 